Welcome to Cyber Vision and today's episode, Director Vidal, Protecting Innovation. I'm Nigel Schweitzer and joined by co-host Francesca Lavoie. Hi, Frankie. Hi, Nigel. I'm beyond excited about having Director Vidal on our podcast today. Today's guest is Director Vidal, Director of the United States Patent and Trademark Office and Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property. A pleasure to have you with us, Director. It's a pleasure to be here. Director, thank you again for joining the Cypher Vision podcast. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I'm super excited about being able to celebrate the fact that you will have been a year in the office. So taking that theme, what was your key motivation for taking the role in the first place? When I thought about where we are in the world right now and where we are in the country, there was definitely a need for more economic prosperity, for more innovation, to solve world problems. And as I thought about it and thought about the role of the director of the USPTO and about all that we're doing right now across U.S. government and in industry with nonprofits, now is the time when we're all aligned to make real positive change. And so once I thought through all of that, it was not hard to decide that this would be a position that I would love to be in and would love to work alongside others to make a real difference. And just thinking back again to when you started, what did you set as your main goals for your time in office? So the first thing I wanted to do was hear from others, because I certainly had my own perspective on where I thought the country could go, where I thought innovation could go within the country with our allies. But I wanted to make sure that I heard from others what their perspectives were, where they thought that we should be focusing. And so that's where I started. I started with listening sessions, both inside and outside the USPTO. When we're thinking about the USPTO, the United States Patent and Trademark Office, what would you say are your key priorities for change and improvement in the office? So if we're talking within the office, I want to make sure that the USPTO runs as a best-in-class agency, as a best-in-class organization. So a lot of it is hearing from those who are on the ground, who are doing patent prosecution, trademark registration on a daily basis, to hear from them on how we could be doing better. How has the agency changed over time? Are there things that are working well? Are there things they'd like to see differently? And so that is something that we immediately latched on to. So just to give you an example, within our patent prosecution group, it turned out that our process for routing and classifying patents meant that patent examiners weren't necessarily getting the patent that was most aligned with their background, and that it took work for them to then transition that to somebody else. So it was all the little things like that that we were trying to solve for to make sure that our work product was excellent, that our processes were excellent, and that we were producing a great work product and creating a great atmosphere for everybody to work in. Everything from that to the hours that people work, to the support we were giving them, to our practices for promotion and hiring to make sure that they comported with the best practices when it came to diversity and inclusion, total worker health, all the great things that any CEO should be thinking about in an organization to make sure that everybody within the organization thrives. Thank you. And you mentioned there diversity, equity and inclusion. I'd like to focus in on that, but more from an innovation standpoint. It's a topic that you've talked about a lot. I think it's something that's close to your heart. And it's something that we've discussed on the Cypher Vision podcast here a number of times. And I'm 
going to reference Mike Bins from Meta, who talked to us about Spanx and the fact that Sarah Blakely, the inventor of Spanx, went around trying to find a, a patent attorney that would help her get her patent through. The story ended positively. It's a great big brand now and she's doing very well and the consumers are all benefiting from those products. How can we have more of those stories? How can we improve diversity in the innovators community? That is something that we're working on, not just at the USPTO, but across U.S. government. So if you follow the work that we do on our Council for Inclusive Innovation, I sit as a vice chair of NACI, the National Advisory Council on Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That is a key tenet of all of that. We certainly want more innovation. We want to bring more innovation to impact, which you can only really do through protecting your intellectual property. And what I would say on the equity and inclusion part of it is the only way all of our countries are going to be able to thrive is if we don't leave anybody on the bench. So I don't see that as the end goal. If you think about Maslow's pyramid of needs, it's not the cherry on top. It's not the top triangle. It is the base. We're never going to get to everything we're trying to get to, whether it's jobs or economic prosperity or solving world problems, if our base isn't strong, if we don't have everybody involved in the base and everybody participating. So along those lines, there are a lot of things that we're doing to make sure that we get out into communities, ensure that people who do have great ideas, have access to the innovation ecosystem. I'm happy to talk about some of those initiatives. We're seeing some great results from a lot of the work that we're doing. It would be great to hear about some of those initiatives. And I know you've also published some data around how those initiatives are helping as well. I will say they start from the beginning and all of our ally countries are similarly minded on all of this. So here in the U.S., we are training children six, seven, eight, nine years old on innovation entrepreneurship, protecting intellectual property. And even after a week of going through a camp, these kids who are that age, seven, eight, nine years old, are asking questions like, how can I protect my merch on the internet? So it's about starting early. Last year, we trained 280,000 children in the country. We need to do much more. So part of what we're doing is where we have a program that's working like that, like our Teach the Teacher program, like the work in our universities, like our pro bono programs, where we get out and meet people where they are, like our training programs, like our resource centers across the country, we are working this year in 2023 to scale that work, to reach out to every single school in the country, to reach out to every state, to make sure that the great work that we're doing is scaled and really ramped up so we get a lot more benefit from it. And then beyond that, we're working on creative programs. So we just released a first to file system for patents where if you're new to the system, we're gonna help you get feedback more quickly so you can get funding and you can bring your innovation to impact. So there are a lot of initiatives that we are doing that are encompassed within what I would call more the equity, and it's about everyone. It's not just about targeting certain groups, it's about making sure that every single person in this country, and I know other countries are doing that as well, have access to the innovation ecosystem. And I will share the stats since you mentioned it, I, I really appreciate that. So right now, now, the percent of U.S. women inventors on our patents is about 12 to 13 percent. Now, when we get out through our pro bono programs and meet people where they are, that jumps to 43 percent. So that is huge. And if you look at some of our other data, those in the program who identify as African-American or Black, 35 percent. 14% Hispanic American, 5.7 Asian American, 1.5 Native American. So it really shows that 
innovation and entrepreneurship is everywhere. And it's our job across U.S. government and working with private institutions to make sure that everybody has access. Thank you for sharing that. I can definitely see how you're starting at the bottom of that Maslow triangle. Nigel, over to you. One of the recurrent themes in the conversation so far has been innovation. But this idea of intellectual property and innovation, those two words, are probably the area where we get the most questions on sight of vision. So what are your views about how patent eligibility fuels the economy and its connection to innovation? It's the gatekeeper for it. Because if technology innovation, if you're not able to protect that with intellectual property, it's very difficult to get investment. It's very difficult to bring your ideas to the marketplace. And so I would say that's where it falls. I know that there are concerns and issues around patent eligibility, but just the general concept of patent eligibility really is the gatekeeper for the IP system doing the job that it needs to do to ensure that we're incentivizing innovation in the first instance, that we're investing in it, and that we're actually taking those ideas and creating jobs and bringing them to market. And obviously, there are lots of challenges. What are you able to say in relation to policy, this balance between innovation, which is protection of the idea, and competition, which is all about free markets. How do you balance that out? What are your views on that topic? So if the IP system, the patent system, if that's working properly, there will be competition. There'll be the ability for others to build on the ideas of others. So I'll just give you an example, and that's with the COVID vaccine. If there was not a patent on mRNA early on, If that whole concept hadn't been created in the first place, if there wasn't innovation in that space in the first place, and if that wasn't patented and brought to the public, we never would have had the speed we did when it came to creating a vaccine. And then if all of the companies across countries didn't have the ability to contribute to each other by saying, okay, this is the part I'm bringing to the table, this is the part I've patented, we never would have come to a solution as quickly as we did. Now, Contrast that with the -the over-the-counter test for detecting whether you have COVID. You have not seen innovation in that area. The reason you have not seen innovation since the very first test, the reason the tests are not as reliable today and they have not kept up with the rate of the vaccines, which have evolved over time and have been developed over time for the new variants, is because you cannot patent that. And so it's really critical in areas where we want to see innovation, where it's critical that we are able to establish a base for investment, that those ideas be patent eligible. That's super interesting. But it's a constant challenge. Getting the balance right, I take it, is non-trivial. It's non-trivial, but it's definitely off right now. And there's a lot of uncertainty right now. So what we are doing as the USPTO is we are working with Congress on giving them technical advice on bills that they may want to introduce, that they have introduced to solve these issues. We're also working with our Supreme Court that we are often solicited for ideas on and views on different cases before the Supreme Court. It comes to the Solicitor General. They work across government on responses. And so we are working to hopefully affect some change in the Supreme Court as well. And also thinking about our own guidance, which we have guidance on patent eligibility. It's working quite well. We received a lot of public comments and are determining, is there more we can do beyond what we're doing right now to make that better? Thank you. And if we can go back to one of the initial comments you made to Frankie about 
looking internally and making improvements to all processes to make it more efficient, both for the large teams that work for the USPTO, but also the even larger community you serve both nationally and internationally. I'd like to ask you about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Obviously, topics close to Cypher's heart, bearing in mind we've spent 10 years developing machine learning to improve pattern classification. What steps have the USPTO taken towards the adoption of AI to increase efficiency? Frankie had said earlier, DEIA is near and dear to my heart. I would put that in a category of about 50 things that are near and dear to my heart, including artificial intelligence. It's an area I practiced in in the 90s. I developed some systems for aircraft. It's a real hot button issue for me. So I will say a couple of things. One, we are doing a lot of cross-government when it comes to AI. When it comes to within the organization itself, we are looking for any solution where we can do better. And you mentioned classification. That is a huge area where without an AI classification system that would help us route applications to the right examiner, it's very difficult to figure out how to route these applications. Technologies are converging. So you no longer have clear boundaries between technologies. And so you really need to have an algorithm that's smarter than what we've had in the past. So we absolutely use AI in that regard. It's also key to discovering all the right prior art. The applicant can be their own lexicographer. There's a lot of rules that we have that make it difficult to use algorithms to try and find prior art. So recently we introduced something that's a more like this or phrase-to-phrase matching, where if an examiner sees something close, they can search and find more like that. So we're constantly working on solutions, looking out for solutions. I've spoken to Mr. Campinos over in Europe about some of the solutions they have. We're working on a work-sharing program where we can share all the information that we have on how to best use AI and learn from each other. Okay, well, bearing in mind the passion and positivity out of your answer there, I'll risk the next question. What would you say to those people who look upon AI or machine learning as being a threat to jobs and therefore a reason for it to be resisted? I think it's like with any new technological revolution that you look at it in a static way and not necessarily a dynamic way on where are we right now and what jobs exist right now that might be replaced without seeing the larger trajectory. As we've gone through the course of history, anytime there's a new technology that's developed, whether it's AI, whether it was automation, the world will adapt around that. It just means that we will reallocate jobs into different types of roles. I don't see an overall concern with it. I think it's more about finding out how we can use AI as a tool to be quicker with problem solving. Maybe we can come up with solutions to the world's problems much more quickly with that as a tool, as opposed to extending it over time. No, very good. And of course, in the UK Supreme Court, we've just been battling with Davos and your Supreme Court has Stephen Thaler to contend with shortly. So the question in this area is not for you to comment on ongoing litigation, which you obviously can't do, but does AI and machine learning pose any threats to the patent system? I wouldn't call it a threat. I would say that as with anything new, it's a challenge to make sure that we understand the meets and bounds of how it might interplay with the IP ecosystem. And so for that reason, we developed an AI ET, ET being Emerging Technologies Working Group. We just issued a request for comment on February 14th to get more information from the public on their ideas on how we contend with AI, including when it's used for invention. 
Because if you think about it, right now you need to be a human inventor. You can't just, as you know, claim that the AI is the inventor itself. But in a lot of these cases, even going back decades, I and mean, I was working on AI in the 90s, AI did play a role in the innovation process. So it is a challenge to make sure that we're listening, that we're ensuring that the laws and the policies really keep up with technology and that we keep our thumb on the pulse of that. Perfect. Great. Director, I'm hoping I can take you beyond the shores of the US now to look at the global landscape and maybe to talk about some of the global trends that you're seeing and what's changing. And I'm wondering if you could give us a view on the threat that potentially China might pose and what the US response should be. A lot to unpack there. I will say that one of the things that I was really surprised about when I came on board was I knew that once I heard from people, once I came to the table with what I had in mind, I knew that there was an imperative that we support small businesses, that we support small inventors, that we work to make sure that there is the ability for them to compete, to grow businesses, to contribute to economic development. What I didn't know when I came here was everybody is focused on that across the globe. So whether it was on my trip to Southeast Asia, whether it's the work we do with Europe, the UK, Canada, everywhere when we meet with people, we all have that in common. And to make sure that in doing that, we're focused on making sure nobody's sitting on the bench, making sure that we give everybody equal opportunity to participate. So just by way of example, we just had a recent three-day meeting around women in IP, and we had, I think, somewhere between 28 to 30 nations fly in for this. Nations in Africa, in Europe, in Asia, in Canada was there, and we're all trying to solve for the same thing. So I think that is fantastic. The other thing we're all trying to solve for is we've all converged around the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. Those are all the laudable goals of everything that we would like to see happen, whether it's from climate to inclusion to all of the things that people want to solve for. So big picture, I feel like we have more in common than we have that's different. You mentioned China. Certainly, China has a different way of looking at intellectual property and policy than some of our allies do in terms of ensuring that IP plays a proper role, cutting down on any counterfeiting, not doing forced tech transfer. I mean, there's some differences that we need to work on and we are engaged on that. I met recently with the China IP office, talked about the need for transparency, for not incentivizing the filing of patents and trademarks. And I think we're on a positive trajectory. But as you know, there's challenges that China has a very stated goal that they want to lead when it comes to tech, science and IP. They just restructured their government to achieve those goals. And we can't be asleep at the wheel. We need to be as aggressive as we can in terms of making sure that in all of our countries that we are ever mindful of the ways that we can create, incentivize innovation in our countries, make sure we're protecting it and make sure that it's a balanced world out there when it comes to trade. No, thank you for sharing that with us. I'd just like to ask you around your views on the Unified Patent Court, if we're zoning in on Europe here. Is that a challenge to the US system too? I wouldn't see it as a challenge. I think the impact of the court is yet to be seen because it's in its nascent stage. To the extent that there is thought that some of the practices in Germany will be adopted by the court, including around injunctions, that may certainly incentivize companies to bring suit in Europe. I know that some of the damages awards in the U.S. encourage companies to bring suits in the U.S. I will say when it comes to 
thinking about courts anywhere in the world, the only thing that would concern me is courts setting worldwide royalties or you know, especially around standard essential patents that are not to the benefit of all the stakeholders. So that is an area where I'm not seeing Europe lean in as much. I'm not seeing the US lean in in terms of trying to create policy around that. But that's something I think we have to be mindful across the globe to make sure that to the extent that anybody's attempting to do something on a worldwide level, that we're taking into consideration all of the values that we care about. Thank you. And you mentioned there when you were were talking about China transparency, and I'd just like to ask you around data and transparency and innovation. It is a topic that we talk about a lot on the podcast. I think we have a firm belief that bringing transparency around IP data can actually mean that you make better business decisions and you actually share it outside the IP team with the wider business and the wider business understands the value that IP brings. But could I ask, how do you feel that data and transparency can actually help innovation? And maybe you can talk about some of the legislative initiatives as well that would bring that about. So I think that they're critical for innovation. And I'll just mention one of them, which is who has a property, right? Who owns a patent? How has it been licensed? It's critical that we have as much transparency into that as possible. It's important for those who want to figure out if they want to license a patent. It's important if somebody thinks they might be infringing on a patent, might need a license. It's also important because we're making a lot of decisions in courts and across government, and we need to make sure that there's no conflicts of interest, that we're dealing with things in the right way. And not having that transparency makes that extremely challenging. So whether that comes through legislation, through other mechanisms, we're certainly exploring that within the USPTO. It's critical to understand how companies are conducting themselves, how they set license rates, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about the IP5 Global Assignment Initiative? Happy to talk about that. So this is both about transparency and about reducing barriers. So to the extent that there is a license where we can be more transparent about it across the different countries, that is critical. So I know this is something that we've been focused on as an administration. I know it's something that other countries that we work with are keenly focused on. Part of it, as I mentioned, is just reducing barriers. So the idea that you can file something on more of a global registry as opposed to having to file in every country, it's going to save a lot of money. Even for the big companies, they've asked for it. When it comes to the smaller company, it becomes extremely burdensome if you have to deal with every country individually. And then, of course, the more we can incentivize the actual filing of this information and make sure that it happens, that provides more transparency. I just wanted to also bring up, I saw a recent LinkedIn post that you published around data on PTABs trials, which again, just sort of lifted the lid in terms of actually seeing transparency and what's going on. A lot of times I know data is used to incentivize change. Sometimes people use data to lobby. And I want to make sure that to the extent we have data, that we are putting it out there because we want to make database decisions, but we want those database decisions to be made on actual data and the full picture of the data. So that's part of the reason why we've been trying to get the data out there on the PTAB. I will also say We're not using the data in any way to suggest we can't get better. So even if the data were to be used to suggest things are going okay right now, if we see any opportunity to make the system better, to ensure that all of those who benefit from the system, who may feel like they're harmed by the system, I want to hear from all of them and make sure we're solving for anything that we can do better. So just 
with regard to PTAB as an example, releasing data and ensuring that people have the best data is not at all an indication that we're not in parallel working on an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, thinking about guidance, thinking about the review process, and trying to make that better, which we absolutely are doing. Thank you. When you think about data and analytics, are there any other initiatives that you'd like to share that you think are important going forward? It's something that we think about on a daily basis, and I almost see it as, back to Maslow's pyramid, it's not the end goal, right? It's something that's imperative that we think about on a daily basis. Part of the struggle is there's some false dialogues out there right now on the benefit of patents to society. And I'm concerned about that. I don't want to disincentivize people from filing patents because some people have the rhetoric out there that patents hurt competition and hurt society. So underlying all of that is the data and the use of the data. So we have a lot of initiatives when we're making decisions across government. We're always educating others across government on the data so that they can make educated decisions that are data-based. Thank you for taking us through that. And as I mentioned earlier on, we're obviously delighted to be celebrating the fact that you will have been a year in office. So if you look forward, what does the future hold for the rest of your term? I would say, Frankie, that what we've done so far is to lay a base for the work that's to come. We've heard from stakeholders externally, internally. We've developed the collaborations with public-private partnerships with other government agencies. And the rest of the time, whatever that time may be, and especially in 2023, we're now positioned to take things across the finish line, to engage in rulemaking, to change some of our policies and practices, to better assist Congress in terms of legislation that's coming up. So for the next part of my tenure, whatever that may hold. We really want to work across government. We want to work with businesses, with the outside world to make sure that we are scaling and doing all the work that we can do at speed to make the whole innovation ecosystem better. Thank you. I have normally the honor, but now I think a difficult job to ask you for a sight of vision, a key message that you would like our listeners to take away from this conversation. I would say, please watch our channels and look at what we're doing and find out how you can contribute because we are working across countries. We're working with our allies and we have open channels of communication. I have an email that people can access from our website where they can email me directly. They can engage when we put out our initiatives. We ask for requests for comment, would love comments on the work that we're doing so we can do even better. And beyond that, With every initiative, there's always an email or a way to engage to provide input. So to me, this is the time. We are all like-minded on what we're trying to accomplish. And this is a time we can really get real work done. And so I would encourage everybody to engage on that. Thank you. Protecting innovation lies at the heart of all intellectual property policy. And it's hugely reassuring to hear from Director Vidal that this was her express intention when taking on the role and to see the progress made in the first year. What also needs to be appreciated is just how important intellectual property is at a national, international, and geopolitical level. And the task of maintaining a level playing field at a time of conflict, recession, pandemic, to name just a few bumps in the road, means that we need to rely even more on policymakers to have a broad and proactive perspective. Thank you, Director Vidal, for sharing your views, and we wish you every success with the remainder of your term in office. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into the Site of Vision podcast series. Please continue the conversation on social using hashtag Site of Vision and share your thoughts about today's episode with Director Vidal on protecting innovation. <laughs>